You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everyone. Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the online component of the City Lights events calendar, where we continue to bring you the authors we know and love through readings, discussions, and forums. As is customary at the outset of each event, I'd like to remind you we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral homelands of the Ohlone peoples. I'd like to take this moment to acknowledge those who have come before us as stewards of the land. So tonight, we are delighted to have back in the house Tim Z. Hernandez celebrating. His new poetry collection is called Some of the Light, New and Selected Poems, and it's published by our friends over at Beacon Press. This is part of their Raised Voices series, brings together 25 years of writing, taking the reader on journey, exploring all the issues that Mr. Hernandez so masterfully explores from his early explorations of machismo to the more recent work about life as a single father. His work ranges in scope. It is at once contemplative, intimate, revelatory, and immersive. It blends tenderness with insight and social consciousness. Timsey Hernandez is an award-winning author, research scholar, and performer. His work includes poetry, fiction, nonfiction, and screenplays. He's the recipient of numerous awards. Uh, his work has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, C-SPAN, also been on NPR's All Things Considered, uh, much, much more. Really a great, great honor to have him with us here tonight. We hosted this wonderful event a few years back uh, in the Poetry Room at City Lights. Um, he had written this wonderful novel called All They Will Call You, and we had a great crew of people together, so that always leaves this wonderful memory in our minds. It's a really pleasure to have him with us. Uh, he's associate professor at the University of Texas at El Paso uh, in their bilingual MFA creative writing, makes his home in El Paso with his two children. Um, we were going to have Seshu Foster with us tonight. Regretfully, he can't be with us, but we wish him all the best. His daughter is actually having a child tonight. So, uh, hey, good luck, my friend. <laughs> we wish you well. And uh, if there's any excuse not to appear, it certainly is that one. So uh, we're going to start with Mr. Hernandez reading from his work at the outset, after which we will engage in a little conversation. We hope to kind of involve all of you. Uh, so please do post your comments, your questions, your reflections, your praise in the chat function of your Zoom dashboard. We're also going to be posting links in the chat with which you may purchase copies of Some of the Light. We are selling them on our website, so please check that out. So please give a warm welcome now to Tim Z. Hernandez. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that, Peter, and City Lights, all the wonderful folks there for supporting my work for, the, for a number of years now. Uh, you know, of which I'm also a big fan of all the books that come out of City Lights, been a big fan for many years when I was also a, a, an aspiring writer back in the day and uh, used to go there just looking at the books, thumbing through them and thinking one day, one day, you know, so it's nice. So thank you for uh, for having me. I appreciate that. Also, want to also say uh, thank you to Seshu Foster as well. You know, he and I have been recently in many conversations about poetry and his writing and my writing. So when I had the opportunity to, to uh, suggest uh, somebody to be in conversation with, he was the first person in mind also because I've been a big fan of his writing for many years too, um, a City Lights author. Uh, and Seshu was very regretful and texted me and said, I am 
I, I apologize. My daughter is having a baby and I tonight, like right now. <laughs> so he said, I'm on my way to the hospital. So please forgive me. And I said, of course, absolutely. Family's always first. So, you know, I know that I know that he had every intention and heart to, to be here with us today. So I apologize to everybody as well on, on his behalf. Um, so but thank you. I appreciate you being here. OK. Um, I think I'll kick it off with with a, a poem uh, from some of the light. Um, yeah, and so the poems for the most part in this book, well, we'll talk a little bit more about them, but I'm just gonna read this poem and then we, it'll kick us off into some of the conversation. <clears throat> Father, of, Father of Clarity. Uh, can everyone hear me okay? Thumbs up if you can hear me all right. So the, yeah, yeah. Okay. Awesome. sounding good. Good, good, thank you. Father of Clarity. Each day is the same now. I wake her up. She is a woman in the making. And me, I am still a boy, given this responsibility of another. And my boy, he is visiting his mother a thousand miles away. We drive to school each morning, discussing the state of all things, how she will need to use my razor blades for my legs, she says, and armpits, except she doesn't say armpits, she says, for under my arms. I mentioned the color of the sky at 8.15 in the morning being something like the color of her eyes, seconds after she was born. She responds by asking me what verisimilitude means. I tell her, look it up. These are the particulars of raising Rumi, not like when we would once hold hands and write our names in the snow, not like when she would fall asleep in the bicycle seat tethered to my back as we rode down Colorado pathways. No, this is El Paso. It is the face without makeup. We cannot hide behind hiding any longer. The dry cycle seems to never dry the first go round. Living alone is learning to speak for both sides of the conversation. And God, isn't this true? And God replies, it's only verisimilitude. Lately, I don't have much to say, except I wish I could go back to Hijira and that rainy cafe in Asheville, North Carolina. I wish I could go back to the beginning again and try, like a video game, the kind my son plays, hit the reset button, throw a love tantrum, force round pegs to fit my square anatomy. I have always wanted a kitchen with a view of both sides, and now I've got two, El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. It's like looking through a kaleidoscope that refracts the surreality of our days. You see here, the mountain preaches with an accent, La Biblia es la verdad, léela. You see here, the Rio Grande River howls in an American twang, go back, back to where you come from. And between the two, a chaparral bows. This is not what brotherhood looks like. But these are not the conversations for Rumi. She reminds me of this. She held up the bird last night, unnamed still, trained it to land on her finger, how it returns to its cage when it flies too far. I am the opposite. I return to flying when I am too far in the cage. She has always been a friend soul to me, more than a daughter. Our hierarchy is this. I make her eggs with arugula and toast. She eats them. We attempt yoga in the mornings. There's a peacefulness in our routine. We don't speak about the day when all of this will be nothing more than a poem. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you all. Uh, yeah, that poem was written about my daughter. <laughs> um, you know, actually, I, I forgot. I wanted to start off the, um, the collection with the, um, with the quote here that's at the beginning of the book, actually, um, by uh, the Mazatec healer Maria Sabina. And the quote goes, in your beautiful world says, 
in your fresh world says, in your world of clarity says, you are a green father says, a father of clarity says, your words are medicine says, your breath is medicine. It's important to it's important for me to, to recite that quote because um, it was really that quote that I think spun me off into to writing more about fatherhood at this time because I was trying to seek uh, just kind of I felt a little bit sort of like I was floating. This is during the pandemic, you know. I felt like I was floating around and uh, without any kind of you know grasp on anything really, and probably like a lot of us must have felt at the time, you know, and. Um, and when I was reading her work, this is actually the quote that leapt out at me, and I, and it and it and it caused a lot of contemplation. So I began to write sort of journal writing, and that's actually what ended up becoming the bulk of some of the poems in this. So that's why it's important that, for me, it was an important reminder um, that my work here is, is to be a father in this during the pandemic, and to and to, I think, be in service of my children at the time. And so that's what a lot of the poems are. Uh, anyway, just wanted to say that outright to kind of give you all a little context of, of the poems inside of the book. Yeah. Um, Peter, uh, are we, should I read some more, another poem or um, maybe Peter's gone? <laughs> oh no, I'm here. Okay, I'm just I'm giving here. you space. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I would yeah, love yeah. it if you would read several poems. Okay, okay. Yeah, I wasn't- Please. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, we'll do that. I'll read you another poem. Let's see. Um, uh, yeah, I'm going to read uh, this one called, uh, well, this one's actually one of those um, journal. So what I was doing, let me just explain a little bit. So, you know, during the pandemic, obviously, none of us, especially in the first year in 2020, when it sort of first really hit, and we didn't know what to expect. It was like, you know, we were being told to stay inside, to not go anywhere. And, you know, that all made sense. But then it was like, as a parent who is, uh, I'm a full-time single parent with two children, two teens, you know, in a, in a small two-bedroom house at the time, it was like, oh, okay, we're supposed to stay at home, okay. <laughs> so, so um, we, you know, as we were inside, I thought to myself, uh, you know, well, if I'm going to stay inside and we can't go outside, then I'm going to try, then I'm going to go all the way inside. Like, I'm just going to, you know, and I'm a, I have a meditation practice for many, many years, for tw over 20 years now, and so... For me, it was just a matter of saying, okay, well then, you know, how do I make the best of the circumstance as it is? Um, and rather than sort of avoid it or numb myself to the circumstance, I just said, I'm gonna go inward further. And so I started to meditate a lot more. And, and a part of that meditation process was the writing of these, um, th these poems that were observations of our life during the pandemic, things that were happening, things I was seeing. And um, at the same time, it so happened that the, uh, the publishers of my two of two of my previous books of poetry had sent during that same time they had sent me letters saying your book is no longer in print with us so here are the rights back and I thought well and one of them was my debut book of poetry which I really I really liked those poems I felt like they needed to still be out in the world and so I thought about them and when all of that sort of came together I realized well maybe this is a new and selected a time for a new and selected poet a book of poetry and then I was like well wait a minute I feel like I just started yesterday maybe I have to wait a little bit more and then I realized I've been writing poems for 25 years and publishing that's okay <laughs> so I, I can put something I feel okay about putting something out at this point and uh, and it felt like a bookend because my first my debut book of poetry skin tax was about, um, at the time I had no children, uh, and it was uh, about uh, male identity, machismo, the culture of machismo um, as a, you know, as a man of color. And so I thought, you know, and those were sort of my, my, my observations and poems at that time, exploring male identity and what that meant. 
And then here I am now, 25 years later with children, writing about fatherhood. So I thought, oh, that's kind of a nice bookend. And you see the sort of progression of, of that. And so that's how the book New and Selected Poems came about. Okay. So, all right. So this is one of the meditations or uh, the journals. August 30th, 2020. Rumi practices ballroom dancing in her bedroom in front of a mirror she trusts. She perfects the foxtrot with a computer screen. Off and on, a song slips from beneath her door. These are the days of her shy guitar. She emerges from her room and declares, I am now 16, the way the passing ambulance declares one more body for the night. Sal is reading the diary of Anne Frank now. A moment ago, before he dozed off, with eyes half shut, he leaned over and whispered to me, why did she want a boyfriend, Dad? Didn't she know she could love anybody? I must remember this. <clears throat> Single parent soliloquy or the joy of kites. Who has time for poetry anymore? I'm writing this as I'm walking. There's music on the loudspeakers of the dentist's office, and I must make poetry of this if I'm to make anything anymore. Somewhere outside here in San Jacinto Plaza, teachers have gathered to protest they want to occupy. Somewhere here, there is always a protest, and it's usually happening when I am occupied. So I've decided to protest on my own. I declare out loud to no one, I am boycotting this house. My mother used to say this, and now I see why. Some days, I catch myself writing just to remind myself that I'm a poet, which means I breathe just like you do, only I have the compulsion to notice and write it down. In case you forget, I write it down for both of us. Single parent raising two children, everything happens like this in singles now. This poem in single lines, line by line, a slice of cheese, toilet paper, a single free minute to jot this down. God, I hope this poem never ends. I feel so alive in this moment, which reminds me, here's what I wanted to tell you. I took the kids to the park yesterday and we flew their kite. The day had wind. The kite soared. I mean, it really soared. Upon holding the end of the string, I was overcome with the pool of sadness. I realize this sounds stupid, but there's something I'm trying to get at here. I became aware that the kite was tugging toward freedom. So naturally, I mean, naturally, I had no choice but to let the kite go. My therapist says letting go is the practice. Who am I to keep anything? I watched it sail out over the rooftops, blend in with the clouds far beyond our vision. This did happen. The kids screamed, cussed at me actually for doing this, said they'd never forgive me, and they stormed back to the truck. Yes, yes, it was worth it. Nothing so beautiful as watching a kite sail off untethered as watching your kids sail off untethered. Nothing so beautiful as letting go. I would do it again. Let go of the string. I am doing it now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, my friend Jaime. Thank you so much. I, I get to see your face also. <laughs> it's been some time, my brother. Uh, let's see. I'll read one more poem and then uh, we can have a little conversation and then I can read maybe another couple later, you know, in, in the midst of this conversation. Um, Let's see here. Uh, oh, I know what I wanted to read. Uh, this was on December 14th, 2020. We have lost the parents of 545 caged children. Yet, 
5G towers are all the rage, but can they track down the families? We have microchipped a monarch butterfly and traced it down to a single tree bough in Bolivia. Just yesterday, NASA's Perseverance rover was tasked with locating ancient microbial life on Mars, but we can't locate non-ancient human life on Earth. We must remember this. Thank you. Thank you all so much for being good listeners, <laughs> for being a captive audience. <laughs> well, thank you, man. That was really beautiful stuff. Very righteous work. Um, I want to remind everybody, uh, please do post your questions, your thoughts, your reflections in the chat function, and we're going to yeah. cull them from there. But I'd like to, you know, maybe offer some some reflections of my own. You, you already talked a little bit about the trajectory of the book and the paths that your work has taken over the years. But I mean, it must have taken a lot of work, man, organizing the material into in the book in its final form. I mean, any project that covers that broad a timeline, I mean, really requires a substantial amount of editing. I mean, how did you decide on what went in and what got yeah. left out? Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, it was for me, I mean, because it was, I had to select a few poems from each of the books. It was just more a matter of like, what, where, where are the heart, what is the heart of these, of this book, you know, or what is the heart of this book? What are the poems that represent the heart of it? And so that's really what allowed me to pull, you know, a handful of them out of each book. Um, but again, too, like when I, when I thought of the structure of the pandemic, when I thought of this, as long as I sort of um, sprinkled sort of these meditations of the pandemic throughout, then very much like the pandemic offered us, which is Throughout our days, if you stayed inside and if you, you know, if you were uh, reflecting a little bit during that time, then you found yourself visiting moments of your of your life. You found yourself, which we always do. But during the pandemic, I felt like there was even more concentration of that. We began to reflect more on ourselves and our past and our lives. So I thought, well, if I just use the structure of these of these new journal entries I've written or these new contemplations I've written, then, then my reflecting back will be based on, will be these poems. You know, I can put the poems in there. That's looking back, that's looking back, that's looking back or looking forward, whatever the poem is. So that's what I was able, that's what made me, that's what helped me really organize the book was, well, as long as I had the sort of framework, the skeleton of, you know, like I said, these meditations throughout then I knew that I can I can almost start from the beginning again uh, and start to just kind of plop in there some of the poems. And I wanted a good representation of poems that that also not just through subject, you know, represented the range of where I've been, but mostly also through through my own writing style, which has changed so much from when I first began writing poetry. You know, it was very uh, dense and lyrical poetry. I was, you know, I was really hooked on Garcia Lorca. And <laughs> I still am, but 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 uh you know um just yeah and then you know you just grow up and get older and mature and have children and then suddenly the writing you no longer have time to sit down and write an epic long poem you know what i mean of like that's like 15 pages long now my poems are much more fragmented and smaller and shorter because i write them in between in the in-between spaces of my life mm -hmm. yeah. you know I'm, I'm moved when you when you talk about the 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 concept of meditating and and have there being almost kind of like an internal logic you know that that ties into this this whole process. Um, it seems that your current work is really informed, but very very importantly, by family, yeah. by your relationship to the environment as well. I mean, living near the border to Mexico brings up many issues related to family because much of what is happening involves children and children fleeing to safety. Would you reflect a little for us on what it's been like 
being a single father acting as witness to 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 what's happening down there yeah here on the border where i live on in el paso um yeah you know that's a good question i mean for us you know the well i should say this my children were raised uh, a, a part of their life in california in the central valley another part of their life in the rocky mountains in colorado for 10 years and then over here on the border in El Paso, which are all very three distinctly different sort of, you know, geographies and people and rhythms. Um, and at, at some point, you know, you realize that what we a lot of us do is we try to avoid or turn away or avert our eyes to a lot of the uh, hard truths of this country. You know, um, we want to preserve our children's innocence as much as possible. So we try and find the best neighborhoods to live in or the best towns to live in. Or, you know, we look at Forbes to tell us which one, which is the number one city in America to buy property at or you know, whatever it is, you know. Um, but we're always trying to find pockets of, of safety, pockets of innocence in a way. And, and here, um, living on the frontera, you, you know, you can't you cannot avert your eyes. You know, it is literally happening and playing out in front of us in our neighborhoods. The border patrol is a ubiquitous presence, just as much as the police. Actually, in fact, more than the police uh, here. And so, you know, it, it's it's very much a part of every day. We see things. We see dehumanization playing out every day, um, in a very literal, direct way. And my kids. Um, you know, so at some point you cannot, when you realize growing up, when you have your, when you're a father here raising children, you realize that you can't, you know, you can't shield them from that. You can't hide them from that reality. So then the only thing you can do is to teach them about it, you know, is to teach them what is happening and then to teach them that we must use our voices, you know. Um, and so they're very aware of that now. I think, though, the most important thing is not necessarily, it's not necessarily about immigration that we see before our eyes or the sort of, you know, the the effects of policies. But what we're looking at here is evidence of dehumanization that's happening in the country, you know, across the country. Our country is, you know, this country is gaining a, a fast, wide reputation for being a country of dehumanizing, uh, you know, policies and, and attitudes, you know, attitudes in general. And so, I feel like, you know, that's, we see it here, we see that playing out through the border patrol and through immigration and all of that, uh, through racism, what happened uh, here in 2019 at the Walmart, the largest mass shooting of Latinos in recent, in modern history, in recent times, I should say. Um, but, uh, you know, so we can't avert our eyes to those things. And so as a father, my job, and I feel like, you know, it really is to, my kids are awake to this at an earlier age than I wish they would be. Um, but they're having these conversations in high schools. They're having these conversations here in middle schools, even the students themselves. And um, so then my job is to try and at least offer some direction in that to the children. And uh, it was a hard thing to grapple with as a dad at first. It was really hard because, you know, you you, you want to preserve their innocence. You, that's, of course, who doesn't? I want them to remain kids as much as possible. I want them to, to have a sense of magic and hope of the world as much as possible. But they're at the age now where they see with their own eyes and, you know, I would look like a fool if I continued to pr pretend somehow things were, you know, and they know that. So, um, yeah, so I teach them a lot how to use their voices and all that. And I think I'm doing a good job. You know, my son is a rapper, lyricist. Uh, he's, he's already at 14. He's uh, already, you know, making his own music and, and recording his, his songs. And my daughter is a, she's a freshman in, in, at the university here in multimedia journalism. So I think that they kind of got the right idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, everything you're saying, you know, it just makes me wonder, it makes me think about poetry as antidote, 
poetry as salve, poetry as a way to kind of connect with the heart. I mean, the, the happenings at the border have this kind of cruelty really attached to them, which to me has always seemed to be like at the heart of American culture. I mean, you'll hear people saying things like, oh, this is not America. This is not us. The horrible things that are happening are because of a national malaise or because of bad actors. But I mean, if you follow the longer narrative of, of origin history in the U.S., I mean, the roots of this country really offer a very chilling reality check. So I guess, you know, I wonder, how does one get out from under the weight of this history in your eyes? I mean, part of the answer, I think, is poetry, actually. Yeah, I, I do. I, you know, and this is something that I, this is something that, you know, I want to say it's it's sort of at the heart of this book, but I, I feel like it's at the heart of probably all the, everything I've written. And that's about, that's less about pointing the finger at others. Uh, you know, I feel like, how do we get out from, your question is, how do we get out from underneath these this heaviness, all the things that are happening? You know, it's easy for us, especially as artists, but for as anybody, actually, I shouldn't say especially as artists, it's just, it, it just as people in general, it's easy for us to want to point our fingers and say, you know, that's the bad guy, they're the bad ones over there, it's them versus us, you know, and I don't, I don't believe that, actually, I believe that we are complicit in all of this, too, you know, and I write that in my poems, I write that in the book, um, you know, just like I say, you know, uh, that the poem I just read, you know, that we, you know, you know, we, we, we have NASA Perseverance rover that's on, you know, on Mars. I, I, I use the collective we often in this because we are very much a part of it. So for me, I feel like, you know, if for me, poetry, what it offers is a way for me to reflect and ask myself those hard questions, ask myself those hard questions, begin there at home, begin with myself first. What am I doing to contribute this to this? Right. Um, how am I contributing to any of these issues, any of these ills that we see, you know, in society? And then I ask myself, well, what am I willing to do to change these things? And sometimes I'm just as human as the rest of us, you know. So I, what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes it's very difficult to make immediate changes. Sometimes it, it is a sacrifice, and you have to consider the balance of all that. Um, and for me. Poetry is less about, my poetry is less about me trying to change anybody. It's more about me trying to change myself. That's really what the poems are about is reflection in a way that says, I'm going to speak honestly about who I am in my situation and what I'm willing to accept and what I'm willing to change. And what, what do I go on keeping the same? What am I doing that, you know, how am I contributing to that? So poetry offers a way to reflect for me. And even at times because of that reflection, a way to heal. But it also, I think the most important thing about poetry that I can see is that it's a way into compassion you know it is a way into compassion it's a way for us if we're honest about writing poetry if we're honest about what we're saying it is a way into to compassion for our brothers and sisters are you know that are out there in the world uh some of them making you know grave mistakes some of them uh lost some committing acts you know incredible acts of violence um but rather than I just feel like as long as we continue to perpetuate the polarity of them versus us, then we're going to always be in this. And maybe we will, we will always be in this. I don't know. But but I feel like at least um, the only thing I can change is my immediate uh, situation. So I have to start with myself. I have to ask myself those things. For me, that's how I, you know, I don't know how everyone else can get out from under it. But for me, that's what my attempt is. How do I get out from under it? I think, too, that a lot of a lot of my writing and, and you know, only because recently I had to um I had to articulate 
some of the trajectory of my different the books I published. And I felt like one thing that I had in common that I had recently come to realize is that that I think I'm striving for if there's one theme, it's interconnectivity and it's interconnectedness, you know, how how we're all a part of this together, you know, and and we cannot extrapolate one, you know, without it affecting the whole. And I know we a lot of us know all this already, but for me, sometimes it's like um, different layers of realization of this that I'm peeling off, you know, as the years go on, you know, so, yeah. Yeah. So it looks like we got some comments coming through. Yes. Uh, Nancy uh, says, thank you for those astounding poems. Please read more. <laughs> and then uh, let's see, uh, we have... Uh, uh jamie says hi tim randy and i are so pleased to be here with you we still think your book about jack's time with bia is uh, just amazing and then uh jamie or jaime i don't know how it's pronounced jaime. For yeah, jaime. Mm -hmm. uh, but the el paso region is also a beautiful place where do you get that kind of inspiration there yeah well yeah, let me answer that. First, let me say, Jamie, uh, it's a, it's really an honor to have you here. Thank you, you and Randy, for both being here. I appreciate that so much, you know, and y'all have been so supportive of my work, uh, especially with B. Franco when I wrote Manana Means Heaven. I appreciate you all for that. Thank you very much for being here. It's an honor. Um, my my brother, Jaime, also, Jaime, it's good to see you too. You know, I know you're uh, out there. Are you still out there in San Marcos area? Wonderful, wonderful. Great professor out there and just a good guy doing good work out there. So thank you for being here as well. Um, Jaime says, yeah, what you said, Jaime, is, is true. You know, there is a lot of beauty here. Uh, I, 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 again, I don't feel like the, the, the sort of the, the more darker challenging aspects are without their light. Of course, it's just, it's just all part of it, you know? Um, and in fact, one of the things I've been accused of in all of my writing is that I've, I'll take something like dark and gritty or even quote unquote ugly and find the beauty within it. I feel like that's really because that's what I, I'm attempting to do in my own life every day. You know, um, I was originally from the San Joaquin Valley, you know, from Fresno, and that's a very gritty, rough place also, you know, agricultural lands and, and stark divisions there between uh, the haves and have nots. And um, you know, and so coming from that, uh, I think maybe, and then also my own personal familial situations growing up, seeing the disparities in my family or the sort of breaking points and things. I just started to, I think early on, feel like, you know, how do we find beauty? How do we, how do we find the beauty in this tough situation or place that we're in? Um, and so, yeah, yeah, El Paso certainly has uh, an immense amount of beauty. And I, I happen to think it begins with the people here. You know, the people in El Paso are just kind-hearted, beautiful people. I mean, I can go to the grocery store here. Like, no, El Paso is like no other place in this country that I've ever been to. I can go to the grocery store, not know the clerk at all, never seen her in my life, and she'll call me Corazon. You know, she'll call me my heart. You know, she'll go, oh, I, here you go, Corazon, like hand me my groceries. And I just go, thank you. She speaks to me like she's my grandmother, you know, or my tia or my aunt. So, and that's that's not just this one grocery store. It's all across the city, very uh, as we say in Spanish, cariñoso, you know, a lot of sort of love and a heart inside of the exchanges here. Except when we're in our cars, for some reason, El Paso is in their cars. It's a whole other thing. But, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I'd like to switch the focus a little bit and talk about the craft of poetry and writing. And the confessional style of writing is is, is something that you employ in your work. Um, if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what that journey has been like for you and, uh, you know, how you've gone from, you know, one kind of mode to another in your work. Yeah, yeah um, 
That one's a quicker answer, actually, because, you know, early on when I first began writing 25 year, years ago, uh, or actually 26 now, um, I had, uh, I was very experimental, you know, um, and, I, and I had a lot of fire in me, you know, uh, from situations in my life that had happened. In fact, I'll just, I'll just say it, uh, an uncle of mine who was like my older brother was killed when I was 21 years old. He was killed by the police while unarmed. Um, he was shot and killed. And uh, I used to be a visual artist. I still am, uh, but I don't give that as much time as I used to. But that was my main thing was painting. I was mostly into murals and painting. And when that happened, I suddenly found myself uh, needing to write. And I started to write words in the paintings. And then one day, my I think it was my art teacher who said, you know, there's a cheaper way to do that. You just get a pencil and a paper and you can write. You don't need to buy canvases and paints for all that. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I kind of, um, and so I took off and began to write. And then uh, writing felt, immediately it felt like I could do things in writing and say things and get my ideas across in a very direct way, in a way that I was feeling frustrated about paints for a long time. I wasn't, I didn't feel that way about paints, but suddenly I'm writing and it was like immediate, like I could just say what was on my mind. And that was so liberating and eye-opening. So I began to be playful, experimental, and write with a lot of fire inside of me at the time. Um, as time went on, you know, I started to obviously read more. Uh, in the beginning, I never thought of them as poems. I just called them writings, you know, and, and actually it wasn't until um, our mutual friend, uh, Juan Felipe Herrera, until I, I, when I met him, the, the, uh, the former U.S. Poet Laureate of the United States, I met him in Fresno, um, and he pretty much found me, <laughs> like, he's the first one who pointed at what I wrote and said, those are poems, you know, you're a poet, you look like a poet, and I said, oh, okay, sure, whatever, I'll, I'll be a poet, if that's what you're calling me, and that's how, um, that's how I took off, that's how I began to call myself a poet and start to think about things that way, and and he uh, very much took me, almost literally took me under his wing for a few years. And we began to write and, and, and be experimental and playful with language. Um, over time, like I said, uh, the more I read and the more sort of, you know, life happened and had children and all that. And, uh, you know, I just started to think about writing in a different way for me. Uh, writing suddenly felt less like it was fire and more love, like more from a softer place. And I'm sure having children did a lot of that work too. Um, and so that's probably one of the biggest shifts in my writing was, was that early on, you know, the language feels like a, like a torrent of language and a torrent of images and, and rhythms, you know, flying at the reader. And now it's much more like sort of, you know, so yeah, language has changed. I don't know if, did I answer the question, but it was, yeah, it was really just about craft and your right. reflections on craft and, and the, you know, yeah, yeah, the yeah. way that you've, you know, sort of used that confessional style of writing. Yeah, the confessional. Right, the yeah. confessional style of writing, yeah. That's right. And so for me, one of the things that has remained, even though the, the style has changed, what has remained is that a lot of my writing, most of it is confessional, most of it is first-person experience. Um, and that's because the way that writing, I found writing or the way that it found me was cathartic. You know, it wasn't, uh, I didn't go to school and study it first. I, in fact, my first book of poetry was published before I ever had a degree in writing, before I took a writing program, you know, before I was in a writing program, that book was was published. Um, so for me, it was always in the beginning, uh, very cathartic. And I wrote to, I think, heal myself in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, it's, and it's really remained that kind of a in fact, I, I intentionally try and keep it uh, that kind of, I protect it. 
my writing so that I continue to write that way and from that place. Even, even if it's prose, nonfiction, fiction, I feel like I'm always digging at, at wounds and trying to sort of heal them and trying to sort of liberate myself from being held by those things, those thoughts, memories, ideas for so long, you know? So that's just naturally, I think, how writing comes to me now. That's what it's been for me. That's how it found me. And that's where I think it still is. Um, even yeah. when, here's the funny part is, even when I started to write more about in my last book, All They Will Call You, which was about a plane crash in 1948, it had to do with the lives, 32 different lives. And I spent, uh, well, I'm still working on it, 13 years now, interviewing families, talking about their lives, writing them down, and only to only to discover this many years later that, you know, what I'm seeking for is still my own healing in their stories, though, you know, and so it's, it's, uh, it's not an altruistic uh, pursuit of looking for their stories, it's actually very selfish still, <laughs> you know, but in the process, I'm able to, to gather their stories and share with them as well. So maybe it works both ways. <laughs> So we have more questions coming in. Uh, Isabella says, which is gracias, Tim, and City Lights for hosting this wonderful event. Tim, I noticed that you have a really innovative way of ending or not ending your poems. Uh, two, do you write in both languages and translate yourself? Three, not surprising that you are a painter. These poems are very visual. Could you please answer the above? Which is gracias. Peruana que vive en Irlanda. Nice. All right, cool. Ireland. Cool. Um, Thank you for those questions. I, I appreciate that so much. Um, yeah, you know, no, I don't write in both languages. I, I mean, I write Spanglish sometimes, you know, but my first language and my my primary language has always been English. Uh, I'm fourth generation, born in California. Uh, my, my All of my grandfather, my parents born in Texas, New Mexico. My mother's side's all from New Mexico. My father's side's all from Texas. And uh, so we've lost we have only now because I'm researching, do we have any connection to our family in Mexico back, you know, four generations, five generations ago, but that has never been the case for me. So I was, you know, California boy, boy born and raised there. Um, and so my grandmother was the only one who would speak Spanish to us. So I was, I became a very good listener and sort of internal translator of Spanish, you know, but for speaking it, uh, you know, it involved having a kind of a permission, I feel like from my own elders at the time. And uh, you know, I'm I'm learning it now. I'm relearning it. Of course, I can speak enough conversationally, but it's not my first thought when I'm creating. My first thought is always in English. I still dream in English, you know, and so um, so I write in English first. Uh, but like I said, sometimes you just have no other word except the Spanish word. So you sprinkle it in there because that's just the only essence. Like I said earlier, cariñoso, you know, uh, you know, like that that word, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's the answer to that. Um, uh, yeah. That was the only question I think you have there because the other ones were just comments. Yeah. Yeah. And then Michael asks, uh, well, staying on the subject of writing and writing styles, I was wondering about the factors that can affect writing. Rather, how does and can education affect your writing style compared to reading other people's writing and getting inspired? Which factors were the most influential in helping you find your own personal writing style? I think reading, reading and writing, of course, those are the main two factors that helped me figure things out was I would read a lot of poetry. Um, I still do. I read a lot of poetry. I read a lot of, and you know, if I tell you the poets I read, I'm sure you can find essences of them inside of this, inside of my books. You know, like I mentioned Juan Felipe Herrera, Jim Harrison is somebody I read a lot. Also, Eileen Miles, uh, you know, Allen Ginsberg, uh, you know, Anna Waldman, just a lot of wonderful poets that I feel like have had a lot of influence uh, indirectly and directly in some cases. Uh, so yeah, I think that reading for sure has always been one of the main things, um, because when you read, you really get a sense of 
it becomes an, almost an instinctual, it turns into an instinctual sense of how language and poems work. And then also the kind of poems you're gravitating toward, right? Because there's so many different types of poetry and, and styles out there. But if you find yourself gravitating toward a certain type of poetry, poet, um, then you know you, you start to learn from that, whether you're aware of it or not. I always, I also, I also always try and throw in a few poets that you know from time to time that are nothing like I would write write about or write from or you know consider. And so they and they that's good because it sort of stirs the creative juices. You know, it makes me think, it makes me rethink everything. You know, I love I love coming upon books like that as well. Um, and then the writing. You know, there's really no way around that except to just write, you know, constantly, constantly. And so even now, you know, I find myself always because I don't have much time because um, I'm between my kids all the time, and my full time job. I actually write quite a bit on my phone. Um, I have a notebook, too, in a journal because I'm still old school like that. I love that. I love that. I'll never get rid of that, you know, but so I'll write in my journal a lot. Um, but whenever I'm like in between spaces, taking my kid to the dentist and we're sitting in the dentist's office and he's, you know, uh, in the dentist chair or something for 45 minutes. I'll start to like just think of all the things that I was I've been holding inside of myself and putting them down into my phone, and then we move on to the next thing, and then there I am again. So you know, constantly writing, constantly generating writing. But I feel like it's not something that feel, that should be forced. It's just something that kind of, you know, you feel like you can't live without doing. <laughs> you just have to do it. You know, you I, I write because I, that's how I make sense of things in myself, and also that's a way to purge um, my own emotions and or not just emotions, but even my own experiences things I'm trying to figure out, if I carry them in my head, I feel physically weighted down. So the moment I put them down on paper or put them out of me, I almost feel them leap out of my soul, you know, and then they're, they're out here now. And I go, okay, now I don't got to worry about them anymore. I put them down, you know, so it makes me feel lighter as well. Mm -hmm. um, but those are the two main things. You know, one of the things in my, in the writing program, because you asked about education and the writing program here at UTEP where I teach, um, you know, it's interesting because I, I teach mostly graduate students. I'm, I'm mostly in the graduate program that, that I'm a professor. And, and the students there still, even as graduates, you know, um, you still find uh, they still there's still a strong sort of educate public educational hold on their creativity, you know. And so a lot of what we're doing is still trying to break some of those walls down, you know. So I say that because, you know, education and creativity, uh, you know, they can make great partners, but that you also have to be careful because one can weigh the other one down uh, or one can stifle the other one. So we have to just be mindful of that. And when, when it's time to make art, which is poetry or writing, uh, for me, it's time to be free, you know? Um, and so I'm, I've trained myself to be very mindful of my own constraints and my own barriers uh, and, how to break through them often, you know, and I had some really good teachers too that I think were part of that training. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, we're coming up to the top of the hour and I was hoping maybe you could maybe end with, you know, one or two poems. Sure, sure. Uh, I think I'm going to read uh, Sandalwood. This morning I had considered buying stock in Sandalwood but then I read that stock in sandalwood has gone up since India has designated the heartwood tree endangered and thieves in the bush with high-powered machines and access who know the underworlds have figured out ways to quietly, delicately hack the trees and haul off truckloads yielding 4,000 per. The Australians got in on this too. The down under was capable of tricking the seed to take their earth and prices stabilized until the sting. 
the Sandalwood gang had disappeared over 20 tons of heartwood. There was a shootout in Jakarta. 12 men were killed, three bystanders, but no children. These are Sandalwood wars, not the essence of wars. What kind of desperation to stain the heartwood with human blood only to have it end up on the market? The authorities burnt an immense pyre of heartwood to send a message to the thieves. But the aroma was intoxicating and immediately recognized across the region. That night, without hesitation, every lover knew what would take place. The children have since been born and are recycled into a life of sandalwood. What a terrible obsession I have each morning after I bathe, dab my finger in that golden oil and place the essence of it on my person. And like this, I walk boldly into the tasks of my day, feeling that such immense peace with myself and with the interconnection of all things. Thank you. Uh, let's see, I'll read the uh, last one here. Um, Okay, I think I'll end it with this one. Uh, this one's about my daughter, TikTok. She reads Rebecca Solnit. She reads Cheryl Strait. She watches videos of Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, TikToks of women dancing on tombs of the patriarchy. She doesn't eat animals because she's lost too many. She delivers speeches on esoteric subjects, on Saluas Nepantla, the divisiveness of rhetoric. She calls out the hypocrisy of prayer, calls out her brother's misuse of the word favoritist, and then she convinces him to start a band. Yesterday, she bought her own clothes. A package arrived at the door. She tried them on before a mirror. She liked what she saw, emerged from her room and said out loud to no one, I am really feeling myself today. And for an instant, I watched her standing in her own natural light. It is late winter now. I love her. I don't know how long this desert can hold us, but it's worth the wonder. Thank you. Oh, man. Thank Straight from the heart. Yeah, thank you all so much. Thank you uh, so much. Been such a pleasure, and I'm really hoping we get you back into the poetry room someday. Uh, yeah, yeah. Looking forward to that, and congratulations on this collection, man. It's it's really gorgeous. Thank you, Pierre. Gorgeous. You guys. Yeah. Uh, also want to say thank you to everybody, Jamie, Cassidy, and Randy. Thank you so much. I appreciate you being here. Jaime as well, my brother. Good to see your face again. I'm glad to see you're doing good. And everyone else whose faces I can't see, uh, but I appreciate you all. Thank you. And, you know, hopefully you pick up the book and enjoy it. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you as well. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.